morning, church family. It is truly a blessing and a privilege to be with you this morning. Uh, I invite you to open your Bibles with me to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. This morning we're going to take a short break from Pastor John's Who We Are uh, preaching series, and we're going to spend some time looking at the Apostle Paul's letter to the church in Ephesus. By God's grace, over the past year or so, we've had several opportunities where we just kind of hit pause on our regularly scheduled programs, and, and we have been able to spend time looking at this incredibly encouraging and amazing letter to the Ephesians. Uh, this morning, our focus is going to be on verses 15 to 19 of chapter 1, uh, but we're going to start by reading from verse 15 all the way down through the end of the chapter. Uh, so if you're borrowing one of our pew Bibles, you should find this passage on, on page 976. I ask that you would just follow along as I read aloud. Ephesians chapter 1, uh, verses 15 to 23. Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit of God, the Apostle Paul wrote the following. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints... I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, and what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. This is the very Word of God. As we start to look at the passage uh, before us, let's quickly just remember what Paul had been writing about uh, up to this point in his letter. If you remember at the very beginning of the letter, Paul identified himself as, as the author of the letter, and then he identified the Ephesians, those the saints that are faithful, um, as the recipients of the letter. And once he had finally finished up those, or quickly finished up those introductory comments, uh, Paul just broke out into this incredible song of praise. It's a song of praise to God the Father who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in Christ and who has sealed us with his Holy Spirit. Uh, so much of our understanding of, of who God is, uh, of what God has done, uh, is informed by Paul's theological treatise there in verses 3 to 14. Uh, he tells us of the Father's plan of redemption, uh, the Son's work of redemption, and, and the Spirit's application of redemption on those who would believe in Christ. We understand the Trinity better, certainly not fully, but better because of what Paul wrote there in verses 3 to 14. We see the incredible electing love of the Father. Uh, we see the sacrificial love of the Son, and we see the everlasting sealing love of the Holy Spirit. As we noted last time as we were studying this letter together, uh, this one long love song to, to God, uh, which is just full of praise, it, it touches on several 
different doctrines. Uh, it touches on the doctrine of the Trinity, of election, the work of Christ, the forgiveness of sins, the gospel of Jesus, grace, creation, redemption, and ultimately, ultimately the consummation when all things are united together in Christ. When he finally finished praising God for his glorious grace, Paul then moved on to praying for the readers of his letter. So he followed up that 220-word song of praise with with a 169-word prayer uh, that also happened to include more praise. Uh, Paul couldn't help himself when it came to praising God. And that's what we see in verses 15, really all the way down through uh, verse 23. Paul writes a prayer for those who who already have everything. He just told them that they had been blessed with every spiritual blessing uh, for their spiritual welfare, and that included election and predestination, adoption, grace, redemption, forgiveness, insight, understanding, knowledge of, his, uh, of the mystery of his will and, and sealing with the Holy Spirit. In light of all that truth, in, in light of all of that blessing, uh, then he told the readers that he was praying for them. Look at verses 15 and 16 again with me. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. If you're taking notes this morning, we'll use those verses as the basis for point number one of our sermon outline. And number one is thank God for faith in Jesus and for love toward all the saints. Thank God for faith in Jesus and for love toward all the saints. Remember that Paul had lived with the Ephesians for some two and a half years. Uh, It's likely that the gospel was actually first brought to Ephesus, not by Paul, uh, but by Priscilla and Aquila. But Paul devoted a significant amount of time to uh, ministering to the Ephesians, and and he saw many people uh, coming to faith in Christ. He helped plant a church there in Ephesus, and and then he would go on and, and carry on with his Uh, with his missionary journeys. Then four or five years later, uh, either by word of mouth or or by letter, uh, Paul received word of the Ephesians' faith in Christ and their love for for all the saints, and and he thanked God for it, and and he told them about this thanksgiving in this letter to them. This should always be our response. Uh, When we hear of faithful believers in Christ uh, and who also love his church, whether it's here in Makakilo or, or over in Hawaii Kai or somewhere on the mainland or anywhere else in the world, uh, we should always be giving thanks to God, and, and we ought to be imitators of Paul when we hear of those who have faith in Christ and who have love for all the saints. As for your pastors, I can tell you that uh, we never cease giving thanks for you as a church. Uh, we delight on Monday mornings. Uh, many of you know that we gather as, as pastors and we, we pray for you. Uh, and unlike uh, Monday morning meetings, maybe in the secular world, which are approached with a sense of dread, I think all of us truly eagerly anticipate meeting on Monday mornings. Uh, we truly consider it one of our uh, highlights of our week, that we get to lift up petitions and prayers for the saints at Makakilo. It truly is our delight. It's our privilege. Well, with regard to the Ephesians, keep in mind that they were once held captive by faith in, in false gods. Sensuality was the name of the game in Ephesus. Uh, they were hosts to one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, the temple of, of the false goddess Artemis, or as the Romans like to refer to her as Diana. 
the livelihood of many Ephesians depended upon the making and the selling of sensual images of this false goddess. Uh, the inhabitants and visitors to Ephesus would, would engage in uh, such perversity uh, that it would probably make modern-day Las Vegas blush. But by God's grace, by God's grace, because he's merciful, because he's loving, the gospel of Jesus Christ came to Ephesus. And like the Thessalonians, the Ephesians received the word of God. Uh, they accepted it, uh, not as the word of man, but as what it really is, the word of God. Uh, they heard the word of truth, the gospel of their salvation, and they believed in Jesus. Uh, they had turned from idols to serve the living and true God. And this is cause for great thanksgiving, as is the love that these believers had for all the saints. And when thinking about the love that the church in Ephesus had for all the saints, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Paul chose the word agape. As Kent Hughes describes, this is a thoughtful, a volitional, purposeful love that wills to love even the unlovely, the very love of God himself. The love that the Ephesian church had for all the saints was in line with the love that Christ had commanded in John 13, 34 and 35. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. And what Paul had recorded in verse 15 is a simple description of a Christian. Calvin says, observe here that under faith and love, Paul sums up the whole perfection of Christians. To be a Christian is to love Jesus and to love his church. The two are completely inseparable. Uh, there is no biblical context for somebody who can profess faith in Christ, who professes a love for Christ, but then who hates or even has ambivalence toward his church. The two don't compute. We just heard Jesus' own words, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. In Ephesians 1, Paul says, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Who's the us to which Paul's referring here? It's us, it's the church, it's the believers in Christ, the body of believers. Be imitators of Christ. Well, what did Christ do? He loved the church. He gave himself up for her. Later on in Ephesians 5, verse 25, Paul instructs husbands to love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Then just down, down a few verses from there, verses 29 to 30, he says, For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. If we are told to imitate Christ, and Christ loved his church, Christ gave himself up for his church, Christ nourishes and cherishes his church, how on earth could we be faithful followers of Christ, uh, but remove ourselves from being in a church. The church has many faults. The church is a collection of sinners saved by grace. Mistakes will be many. Mistakes will abound. But that doesn't mean that we, we pull away from the church. That means that instead we're, we're kind to one another. And we're tenderhearted. We're forgiving one another. 
as God in Christ forgave us. That brings us to point number two on the sermon outline, which is to pray for knowledge of God. Pray for knowledge of God. Seven or eight years ago when, when I was still on active duty, uh, then Vice President Joseph Biden was, was returning from travels, I think it was to China, and he was coming back, and, and he decided to go ahead and make a stop in Hawaii. And, and so the base set up a stage, and um, Joe Biden came out and gave about a 10 or 15-minute speech, and then he took some time just to do a meet-and-greet with the troops there. And, and so I had the opportunity to meet Joe Biden. We shook hands. Um, he sniffed my hair. No, he, he, he didn't actually sniff my hair. Um, but, but we didn't meet face to face. We actually shook hands. And even so, I, I still, at this point, cannot claim that I know Joseph Biden. Right? I, I know facts about Joseph Biden. I know that he's from Delaware. I, I know that he's the president of the United States. I know that he's married and has kids. I know that he lost a son in Iraq. I know that he has a profound love for, for the men and women in our military services. Uh, but even though I know these things about him, I still cannot claim to know him. And I know for a fact that he doesn't claim to know me. And knowing facts about somebody is good. It's a good start, but it's not sufficient. Now, this is especially true when we're talking about knowing God. And I've titled this morning's sermon, that, that You May Know Him, because that really is the heart of Paul's prayer here to the Ephesians in verses 1 to 20, or 15 to 23. Knowing Jesus is one of the, the ways in which the New Testament writers used to explain what genuine saving faith is. In his high priestly prayer, Jesus himself stated, and this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. That's John 17, 3. Knowing Jesus is our greatest need. And that's why Paul wrote this letter and this prayer some 2,000 years ago. And that's why I'm standing up here in front of you this morning. Let's look at verses 16 and 17 again. It says, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. Did you catch that Trinitarian nature of Paul's prayer there? Uh, in verse 17, Paul prays that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the Spirit. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. There's passages like these that inform and affirm our beliefs. Uh, we believe in the triune God. Uh, we believe in Jesus Christ as Savior and King. We believe in the truth of the Scriptures. The heart of Paul's prayer is, is for a deeper knowledge of God. In verse 17, he's praying that the Ephesians would be given the spirit of wisdom and revelation in order to know God more. And then in verse 18 and 19, which we'll look at in just a couple of minutes, Paul prays that the Ephesians would have the eyes of their hearts enlightened in order to know the hope, the inheritance, and the power that theirs is theirs in Christ. Paul's writing, uh, Paul is praying that the readers of his letter may know God more. To truly know someone, there has to be a mutual knowledge, though. There, there are too many people out there who, who have knowledge of God uh, who have never repented of sin and, and put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Uh, they've never come to a place where they 
intimately know God and more importantly are intimately known by God. Jesus warned of this reality in Matthew 7, verses 22 and 23. He said, On that day many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. What a terrifying thought. What a terrifying truth. Paul wanted to ensure that something like what Jesus had described there in Matthew 7 would never happen to the Ephesians. So he prayed that they would know God. And this might seem strange given the fact that Paul was the one who had taught the Ephesians so much about God. Paul had kind of supervised their growing knowledge of God in two and a half years of ministering to them and teaching them day in and day out. He taught them over and over again, and they came to know, they personally know God under his instruction. But what he's praying for here is a greater knowledge of God. He's praying for a full and deep and thorough knowledge of God. He'd already given thanks for their faith in Jesus. He'd given thanks for the fact that they had um, love for all the saints. But he wanted to see them go deeper and deeper in their relationship with God. This is truly the great need of the church. And and many say that they have faith in God. But when pressed on the subject, um, they can't really even describe what that means. They say that they believe the gospel, but then you ask them, well, what is the gospel? How is a person saved? Uh, And they kind of just look at you with... Uh, that blank stare, that deer-in-the-headlights kind of stare. There's too many people who profess faith in God, but it's a God that they don't even know. James Montgomery Boyce was asked uh, in a Q&A session, what do you think is the greatest lack among evangelical Christians in America today? Uh, that it was the first time that he had been a- ever asked a question like that, and this was his reply. He says, I think that the greatest need of the evangelical church today is for professing Christians really to know God. I think this is still true today. Uh, If anything, I think this is probably more true today than it was some 40 years ago when he answered that question. In his book, Knowing God, J.I. Packer concluded that what matters supremely is not the fact that I know God, but the larger fact which underlies it and the fact that he knows me. That seems to be Paul's perspective here in Ephesians 1.17. He prays that the readers of his letter might know God uh, because it was God who first set his love upon us and elected to know us savingly. And that brings us to our our third and final point there, point number three, which is to pray, uh, pray to know the hope, the inheritance, and the power that are ours in Christ. I pray to know the hope, the inheritance, and the power that are ours in Christ. We see that in verses 18 and 19. Look there with me again. Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the work, working of his great might. And note that Paul here was not praying uh, for the Ephesians to have hope. Uh, he wasn't praying that they would be given an inheritance. Uh, He wasn't praying that they would experience the power of God. No, he wanted them to know 
the hope to which they had been called. He wanted them to know the riches of God's glorious inheritance in the saints. He wanted them to know the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe. Uh, the hope, the inheritance, the power, they are already ours in Christ. Paul wasn't asking for these things to be given to them. He was wanting them to know that they had already been given to them. And in knowing this, that their lives would reflect that. Let's first take a look at the hope to which God has called us. Uh, on Friday nights, uh, up in the youth group, we're going through this uh, series called The Road Trip to Truth. And, and over the last couple of weeks, we've been thinking about postmodernism and, and seeing really how postmodern thought uh, tends to lead only to despair and depression, a, a hopelessness of sorts. If we're simply a result of random chance, uh, if, if this life is all that there is and there's nothing beyond natural selection, if there is no eternity, if my only purpose in life is to make myself happy, and then I realize that I can't make myself happy in any lasting and meaningful way, then I can rightly conclude that life is meaningless. I'm without purpose. I'm without hope. Of course, this was not news to the Apostle Paul. Nearly 2,000 years before postmodernism was even a thing, he described those who were separated from Christ as having no hope and without God in the world. But God has given the believer in Christ an eternal hope. Paul wanted the Ephesians to know this hope that was theirs in Christ by linking hope and calling. He linked these two words together, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. He is demonstrating that our hope has its source in our election, uh, in our calling, which took place before time even began. And our hope uh, has been secured by the sealing of the Holy Spirit. In everyday speech, uh, hope is tied to something that's kind of uncertain. Uh, people say things like, I hope we get to go to lunch today, or I hope the Broncos win. Right? You can't think of anything less certain than that, right? Um, but, you, um, but in the Bible, uh, hope is always tied to that which is quite certain. And that's mainly because of, it's grounded on what God has done or what God has promised, Alistair Begg defines hope as, as the assurance of a reality that has not yet been fully experienced. I think that's a really helpful de definition. Uh, biblical hope is the assurance of a reality that has not yet been fully experienced. Biblical hope is, is not wishful thinking. It's not wishing upon a star. Biblical hope is something for which we have assurance because it's grounded in the very character of God who cannot lie. According to Kent Hughes, the hope that Paul wants the Ephesians to know is, is the grand hope of being manifested with Christ in glory. Romans 5.2 says that we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Colossians 3 says to set your minds on the things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. This is the hope to which we have been called. And knowing this hope, holding on to this hope, should transform the way that we live our lives in the here and now. Uh, we can't get bogged down in, in the troubles that we experience day in and day out. The enemy will throw all kinds of things at us, but holding on to this hope helps us to persevere through all of that as we keep our eyes fixed on the cross, fixed on the promise 
uh, return of Christ himself. And secondly, Paul prayed that the readers of his letters would know what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. Uh, the original Greek there affords uh, at least two interpretations of this phrase. And if you look at the, a number of scholars, you kind of see that they're split on both sides. Folks like F.F. F. Bruce believe that what Paul wants his readers to know is that we are the riches of God's inheritance in the saints. That Bruce writes, Paul prays here that his readers will appreciate the value which God places on them, his plan to accomplish his eternal purposes through them as the first fruits of the reconciled universe of the future, in order that their lives may be in keeping with the high calling and that they may accept in grateful humility the grace and glory that thus lavished on them. So in this view, it is God's inheritance of us that Paul wants us to know about. But then there are folks like James Montgomery Boyce who believes that Paul is actually referring to the inheritance that has been given to us in salvation. It's not that we ourselves are God's inheritance, uh, though there is an aspect of truth in that as, as we are a people of God's own possession, but as joint heirs with Christ, we have been given an inheritance which is imperishable. It's undefiled. It's unfading. It's kept in heaven for us. That's First Peter 1.4. I think this is the right interpretation, especially in light of Colossians 1.12, in which Paul was also praying there, and he was giving thanks to the Father who, was who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. And the way we're qualified to share that inheritance is by grace through faith in Christ. Now, the reality that we know very, uh, is that we know very little of this inheritance that's kept in heaven for us. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then sh I shall know more fully, even as I have been fully known. That's 1 Corinthians 13, 12. As we grow in our knowledge of the hope and the inheritance that are ours in Christ, we should be praying to grow in knowledge of both of these things. This would greatly impact the way that we just live our lives day to day. Lastly, let's, let's briefly take a look at the immeasurable greatness of God's power toward us who believe. And this was where Paul really gets carried away in his prayer. Look at verses 19 to 23. And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and, and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Paul gets carried away in praising God when he thinks about the, this awesome power of God on display through the resurrection of Christ. He, he just can't help but keep writing about this. And remember how Paul started the prayer by, by thanking God uh, for the, the love and for the faith of the Ephesian believers. And he was continuing his prayer as he was continuing it. It seems that he got swept away in describing God's power for those who would believe. Nowhere is that power more clearly displayed than in the resurrection and ascension of Jesus Christ. The power that raised Jesus from the dead, that's the same power that resurrected our spiritually dead souls. And what we have to see is that this power 
that raised Christ can, barely, uh, can bear directly even on our lives today. If the Lord wills, we'll, we'll look more closely at this power in, in the next time that we're studying this passage. Um, but uh, suffice it to say that I think we know very little of this power, or maybe I'm just speaking from my perspective here, that I know, I think intellectually, this power, but oftentimes I, I have a tendency of, or f- of forgetting it. Uh, as I go through life, I can uh, easily be overwhelmed. I can feel anxious. I can feel um, even despair at times. And when I do that, I realize that I'm forgetting ab- about the power of Christ that's in me. Uh, my, my eyes are taken off the cross, and I, I get overwhelmed with the circumstances of, of life around me. But when I'm reminded of the power of Christ, if I, when I'm reminded that we are overcomers in Christ, it changes everything. It changes everything that happens day to day. We, we need to know this power more. I pray as a church that we would be praying for one another to know this power more as well. Some critics say that Christians are so heavenly-minded uh, that they're of no earthly good. And to the contrary, I think that we who are citizens of heaven, we, we make the greatest differences here on earth. As we grow in our knowledge of the hope that is ours in Christ, as we grow in the knowledge of the inheritance that is ours in Christ, as we grow in, in the knowledge of the immeasurable greatness of God's power, which is ours in Christ, it's only then that we can effectively and successfully live as citizens of heaven amongst a crooked and twisted generation. So how, how do we apply Paul's prayer here. What do we do with this truth? First, I think it's important for us to recognize and remember that according to Paul's prayer, the work of illumination and and growing in knowledge of God is at least in part, it's the work of the Holy Spirit. This is why he prays on behalf of the Ephesians that they would be given the spirit of wisdom and of revelation. That's why he prays that the eyes of their hearts would be enlightened This requires the work of the Holy Spirit in us. That's what we refer to as the doctrine of illumination. And so as we approach our daily time in God's Word, we should be praying for God to illuminate our hearts and to give us wisdom and understanding of His Word that He would reveal to us. Like the psalmist wrote in Psalm 119, verse 18, we should pray for God to open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things from your law. As we saw in Scripture reading this morning, what God did for Lydia in Acts 16, as, as we saw what he did for the disciples in Luke 24, we should pray that God would open our hearts and our minds to understand the Scriptures. In addition to personal devotion time and, and uh, meditation and in his word, God has also given us uh, the shepherds and the teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry for building up the body of Christ until we all attain the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God. This is one of the many reasons we commit to being part of a local church. God has given the church pastors, shepherds, teachers. If I understand Ephesians 4 correctly, God brings about spiritual maturity. God brings about a greater knowledge of himself by means of pastors and teachers who would take the word of God and explain it to the church. As we listen to the preaching of God's word, as we approach Sunday mornings, we should do so 
with a heart of prayer that God would reveal these things, his truth to us in that, that we would grow in our knowledge as a result of sitting under the teaching of faithful pastors. As God answers those prayers and as our knowledge of him increases, uh, so too should our, our worship of him. Our adoration should be increased as we grow in knowledge of Christ. We don't grow in knowledge for the sake of, of having more knowledge. The end goal is to give God the praise for it, to, to increase our understanding of him so that we might worship him more. That's the right response to increase knowledge. Of course, all of this is true for the saints, for those who have repented of sin and, and put their faith in Christ. If, however, you realize this morning that you don't know Christ, that maybe you know some things about him, maybe you even have warm thoughts toward him, but that you don't actually know him, and more importantly, that you are not known by him, let me just encourage you, don't delay, don't wait, repent now, confess your sin to God. He is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins. I would encourage you to simply heed Christ's own words to repent and believe in the gospel. May today be the day of your salvation. May today be the day that you can say that you have been saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, I, I thank you for the faith and for the love of the saints in Makakilo. I thank you that they know you and are known by you. I pray that you would continue to enlighten the eyes of our hearts that we might know you more. Equip us to live in light of the hope, the inheritance, and the power that are ours in Christ. For those who still do not know you, I pray that today that you would grant them repentance and faith. Like you've done for us, open their minds and their hearts to their helplessness, to their hopelessness apart from Christ. Save them today by your grace. We ask this in the name of Jesus, all for your glory. Amen.